When one of our daughters was about 10 years old, a day came in her swimming lessons in which in order to progress to uh, achieve this junior lifeguard status, she had to swim to the bottom of a pretty deep pool and carry a heavy brick up from the bottom. Well, being both naturally timid and especially petite, the thought of being under the water too long trying to get the brick to the surface just terrified her so much so that she wanted to quit her course of lessons. As loving parents, of course, we strongly encouraged her to stay with it, and we cheered her on to take the dreaded test. Much to her surprise, she did so successfully. Now, as I think back on that, I realize that the experience not only shaped our daughter's character, it, or at least helped to shape it, it was one of the occasions that grew her confidence in us. Our love and encouragement gave her the security she needed to face a situation that felt very threatening. In this week's lesson, Abraham and Sarah experienced some serious threats. Abraham felt his life was threatened when they moved to Gerar. Sarah felt her son's position and inheritance was threatened by the presence of Ishmael. And finally, Abraham faced the threat of losing his one and only son by obeying God. There are many threats in life that none of us can control. Any of us might lose our health, our loved ones, our source of income, and other resources. In fact, eventually, most of us do lose some of these things. And naturally speaking, those are frightening thoughts. Where can we find real security? The answer is the love of God. The deep, unfailing, personal love of God for each of us leads to genuine security, a security that calms fears of any and every threat. Only perfect love deserves absolute trust. And that's the kind of love God has for us. Embracing his love is the secret to finding real security amidst life's threats. Now, as the stories reveal, Abraham and Sarah didn't always remember to trust God when circumstances threatened them. But when Abraham did, he was able to face a threat so great with such confidence that his actions have stood as the supreme example of trusting and obeying God throughout history. Well, Genesis 20, that's where we're beginning. Genesis 20 tells us that an unspecified amount of time after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham left Mamre and headed south into Philistine territory to a place called Gerar. Now, this is the first of over 300 Old Testament references to the Philistines. 
Archaeologists, in fact, do not believe this is the same group of people as the Philistines who became bitter enemies of King David and of Israel. That group of people didn't enter Canaan until much later, around 1200 B.C. Here in Abraham's time, we're closer to 2000 B.C. Interestingly, the modern name Palestine was derived from the word Philistine. Palestine means land of the Philistines. Now, you probably remember that Abraham was thrown out of Egypt earlier in his life for having deceived Pharaoh and all the Egyptians by claiming Sarah was his sister. Here in chapter 20, we see that he repeated the ruse. Abraham seemed to be a spiritual giant in the previous chapter in which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So it's rather shocking to find him falling back into an old sinful habit. Sadly, we will learn that both Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob struggled with this same sin of deceit. Abimelech is the Philistine king in both Genesis 20 and 26. Some have suggested that the name, which means my father is king, may have been a Philistine title given to their rulers rather than just a personal name, like Pharaoh was a title in Egypt. But we have to wonder why on earth Abimelech would have been interested in taking a 90-year-old woman into his harem. Scholars Kyle and Delitch suggest that Abraham took her to ally himself with Abraham, who was a rich nomad, a rich nomadic prince himself. Maybe that was it. Very well could be. But remember also, we were told previously that Sarah was considered quite beautiful. And we were told that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was immediately preceded by divine assurance that Sarah would give birth within a year's time. For this reason, some have suggested that the postmenopausal Sarah was in the process of being hormonally rejuvenated in preparation to bear Isaac, and this might, might have caused her to appear much younger than she actually was. Regardless, the fact that God promised her a son within a year is critical information. For we must believe she'd become fertile. To be taken into Abimelech's harem greatly jeopardized God's plan to give her Isaac through Abraham. Furthermore, throughout the ancient Orient, adultery warranted the death penalty. If Abimelech engaged Sarah sexually and she was later discovered to be Abraham's wife, her life was at risk. Why would Abraham have made such a foolish mistake and risk losing Sarah and the child she was to bear him? 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns us, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. None of us is ever beyond temptation. Abraham felt threatened, and he resorted to an old self-made plan instead of trusting the love of God. 
Well, verse 3 says that God came to Abimelech in a dream. Abimelech's relationship to God isn't clearly explained in the text. From the beginning of human history, though, God has always been concerned about all people. The Old Testament features many stories whose characters were outside of Abraham's family, that is Israel, yet in a relationship with God. Genesis 14, we saw that Melchizedek was one such individual. Later, Rahab, Ruth, and Jethro are all shown to be in right relationship with God, even though none of them were Israelites. Now, Abraham's family is the focus of the Old Testament, but that's because God's purpose was to use them to reach the rest of the world. God protected Sarah and Abimelech, preventing him from touching Sarah. And most importantly, he protected his plan and promised to give Abraham and Sarah a child of their own that year. Well, God told Abimelech to have Abraham pray for him, stating that Abraham was a prophet. This is the first use of the word prophet in the Bible. We're not surprised to read that Abimelech rebuked Abraham for his deceit. In his defense, Abraham told him that Sarah really was his half-sister and that through the years he'd repeatedly left out the fact that she was also his wife in self-defense. But a half-truth, when used to deceive, is still a lie. Undoubtedly, Abraham was shamed before this local ruler. By his own testimony, he said he thought there was no fear of God in Gerar, in this place, verse 11. And yet, Abimelech had acted more honorably than he. To add to his embarrassment, Abimelech was to pray for, uh, excuse me, Abraham was to pray for Abimelech, absolving him of guilt and restoring fertility to his household. How humbling for Abraham. We learn in chapter 21 that immediately following this event, Sarah did indeed become pregnant by Abraham. She gave birth to Isaac at the very time God had promised, verse 2. Now, according to ancient Middle Eastern custom, children were normally weaned at age three, and a feast to celebrate the event was held. So if Isaac was three, then Ishmael, Hagar's son, would have been 17 years old when he infamously mocked Isaac. Witnessing this, Sarah insisted Abraham immediately put Hagar and Ishmael out of the household. She claimed her reason for wanting this was that Ishmael would never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. That's in verse 10. Now, according to custom, if a natural heir was born the heir through the slave woman would lose the right of being chief inheritor. However, previous heirs were to be well-treated. Further, the laws of the day entitled Ishmael to inheritance of some kind, unless, as the slave son of a slave, he chose his freedom in its place. So by insisting that they were put out of the household, Sarah essentially forced Hagar and Ishmael to choose freedom over inheritance. Hmm. 
The English translation that indicates Abram's distress in verse 11 actually underestimates the force of the original language. Abraham, in fact, exploded in anger. Despite Ishmael's difficult nature, Abraham surely loved him. He was his son. So God spoke to Abraham, affirming his plan to make Ishmael into a great nation and telling him to comply with Sarah's wishes. He reminded Abraham that Isaac would be the sole inheritor of the patriarchal covenant. While it seems God planned a separation between Ishmael and Isaac, he couldn't have been pleased with the manner in which it occurred. Sarah acted out of unresolved resentment. She could have trusted God to ensure Isaac would receive all he promised him in his time and in his way. She could have waited for God to remove the threat she felt. But just as in the case of Joseph, where his brothers intended him harm, God meant it for good, the good of both Isaac and Ishmael. The scene ends with a commentary. God was with the boy as he grew up. He and his mother lived in the desert, and he became an archer. His mother later got him a wife from her homeland, Egypt. And Genesis 21 ends with some other information, information that's peripheral to this immediate story, but of greater importance in the larger story. We're told that Abimelech initiated a treaty with Abraham in Beersheba. Despite Abraham's ongoing position as an alien and not a landowner in Canaan, Abimelech was, in initiating this treaty, he was acknowledging Abraham's influence. He believed it was in his best interest and that of his people to be at peace with Abraham. Abimelech's interest in this treaty, as I said, shows that God's promises to bless Abraham and make his name great were taking hold. But God had also promised to make Abraham a blessing to others. God had said, all people on earth will be blessed through you. He wanted Abraham and Sarah to be a blessing to Abimelech and to Hagar, a fact they seemingly failed to remember. You see, God loves without discrimination. God loves without discrimination. Genesis 20 and 21 illustrate God's loving concern for individuals of every ethnicity, economic status, and gender. God wasn't only concerned for Abraham. He was concerned for Abimelech, a male Gentile of royal stature, and equally for an Egyptian female slave and her son, Hagar and Ishmael. Romans 10, 11 to 13 says, anyone who believes in him, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 2.11 affirms God does not show favoritism. Although he chose to work through Abraham and his son Isaac, he did so to accomplish his plan of salvation 
for the benefit of the entire world, to bless all nations. He loves the world. Do we tend to discriminate? Inwardly rationalizing reasons? We can love some people well, but not others. Do those we reject, in fact, represent some kind of threat to us? Maybe a threat to our time? A threat to our senses? Maybe a threat to the way we see ourselves? If Abraham had rested in God's love, he wouldn't have felt threatened by Abimelech. If Sarah had rested in God's love, she wouldn't have felt threatened by Ishmael. In light of God's deep love for you, the next time someone needs seems threatening, will you dive down and carry up the brick of love for them? It may feel intimidating, like taking a deep dive and wondering if you'll be able to come back up. But God never asks us to do anything that won't ultimately be for our good. He loves us too much. And he wants us to genuinely love those difficult people in our lives. Well, God's plan to demonstrate his love to the world through his people is illustrated for us quite graphically in Genesis 22. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, God told Abraham to sacrifice his one and only beloved son, Isaac. The force of the imperatives, take your son, go, and sacrifice, take, go, sacrifice, is more obvious in the original Hebrew language, indicating that God's command was exceedingly clear to Abraham. Now, while we are told in verse 1 that this was a test, and later we learn that God never intended Isaac to be sacrificed, from Abraham's perspective, he could not have understood the command to mean anything other than that God was requiring him to sacrifice Isaac. He was forced to choose between obedience to God and the love of his own child. One cannot conceive of a more difficult demand. A child sacrifice was already known in Abraham's day as a demand of local gods. God later forbade the Israelites from this and other heathen practices used by the nations around them. But that was not because he didn't have the right to require it. Everything we have, he's lent to us. God owns all life and has a right to give or take it as he wills. In fact, his sacrifice of his own son is the central work of redemption. He's the author, creator, and owner of all. So God told Abraham, go to the region of Moriah to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering on a mountain I'll show you. And not all agree the region of Moriah, where Abraham was sent by God, is the same location as the Mount Moriah in Jerusalem on which Solomon's temple was later built. However, the distance between Beersheba, where Abraham was living, and Jerusalem does correspond to the three-day journey Abraham and Isaac made. And furthermore, if God only intended to test Abraham's willingness to obey, 
The location would seem irrelevant and such a long journey unnecessary. It does seem God had a distinct purpose for sending Abraham to Moriah. Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, you see, was the site on which Israel later sacrificed animals in substitution for their own sin for centuries. You've got to wonder what went on in Abraham's mind during the night. Surely it was an agonizing and sleepless one. He must have considered whether or not he would obey God's commands first and foremost. He likely replayed God's command over and over. If it had been any less specific, Abraham probably would have doubted that he correctly understood. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 tells us that Abraham reasoned God could raise Isaac from the dead. Now, there's no precedent for bodily resurrection given in Scripture prior to Abraham's time. So it seems that Abraham merely reasoned God could do this. Resurrection would reconcile the seeming conflict between God's promise to bless all nations and give him many descendants through Isaac and God's command to sacrifice him. Abraham acted early, very early the next morning. He and Isaac were accompanied by two servants, we're told, and when they arrived at the place God told them about, Abraham said to the servants, wait behind with the donkey, we will worship, and then we will come back to you, verse 5. This statement clearly affirms Abraham's belief that this wouldn't be the end of Isaac. We will come back to you, he said. As difficult as it would be to obey, and although Abraham may not have fully understood, he knew that obedience to a good God could never present any real threat. Now, scholars believe Isaac would have been at least a teenager by this time, possibly 20. He was old enough and strong enough to carry all the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain alone, and he was old enough to have resisted when tied to an altar. Apparently, Isaac trusted his father just as his father trusted God. Now, as Abraham was about to slay Isaac, just as he was about to slay him, we're told that the angel of the Lord called and stopped him, saying in verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. At that very moment, Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket nearby. God had provided a substitute for Isaac, and Abraham offered it in Isaac's place. Perhaps God asked Abraham to offer Isaac, in part, to see if Abraham was willing to make the sacrifice in his heart. Among the great blessings Abraham learned from his obedience was that God provides for those who put their confidence in him. His trust in the Lord, his faith, must have deepened. Abraham experienced God in a new way, as provider. On previous occasions, he'd repeatedly taken matters into his own hands when threatened. 
But this surely wasn't the only reason for this whole ordeal. During the years after God gave his specific promises to Abraham, Abraham must have thought long and hard about those promises. It certainly seems he would have wondered exactly how God would go about fulfilling them, especially his promise to bless the entire world through him. Perhaps God's command to sacrifice Isaac wasn't only a test of Abraham's faith, but also an answer to Abraham's question concerning how God would bless all nations through him. God gave Abraham a graphic illustration of the future sacrificial substitutionary death of the Messiah, Abraham's greatest descendant, as the means by which he would ultimately fulfill his promise. Dr. Walt Kaiser reminds us that John 8.56 substantiates this claim when Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Kaiser says that Jesus seemed to be suggesting that Abraham had some understanding of what his greatest son, the Christ, would do. This illustration was significant for Abraham's descendants, who for centuries presented animals as substitutionary sacrifices for their own sins in accordance with the Mosaic law. And most information in Abraham's day was passed down orally. Without doubt, Abraham, Isaac, and all their children for centuries surely would have repeated the story of Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac until it was finally penned by Moses. But even more important, this story of a father's willingness to sacrifice his one and only son, retold through the centuries, it should have prepared the Jews to see Christ's death on the cross as God's plan for the Messiah from the beginning of time. Abraham and Isaac's story prefigures God the Father's sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, whom he loved. This story prepared people in every subsequent age to understand the substitutionary nature of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. He died in our place. God's love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Now, Isaac isn't a perfect type or picture of Christ because his life was spared. God, however, did not spare his son, Jesus. He made the sacrifice because of the depth of his love for us. John 3.16 says that out of love for us, God gave his one and only son. Let me ask. Would you describe yourself as a person who's deeply secure in God's love for you? He wants you to have that sense of security. He wants us to be rooted and established in his love. He wants us to know the width and length and height and depth of it. 
His unfailing love gives us the security we need to face anything that seems threatening. He paid a great price to prove that love. What's God asking you to do that scares the bejeebers out of you? Are you terrified you won't make it to the next paycheck if you start to tithe faithfully? You may have to make some sacrifices. But if you, in obedience, take the plunge, he won't let you drown. Are you worried that if you forgive that horrible boss, he or she may just keep on taking advantage of you? They might. But God is bigger. He loves you and will help you love and serve them. Even if you never rise to the top of your company, you will rise to breathe the clean, healthy air of a resentment-free, clean conscience. Do you need to release an unhealthy relationship with someone who gives you false security? Will you sacrifice that relationship out of love for the only one who can offer you true security, the one who loves you most? Or maybe you need to say yes to God's call to serve him in some quite intimidating capacity. I've been there. And I'll tell you what, it means sacrificing your ego because I can pretty much guarantee you that you'll probably make a lot of mistakes or at least a few as you learn your new role. But if God's calling you to do it, you won't regret taking the plunge. You see, we can dive down for that brick that looks impossibly heavy and threatening, knowing that our loving Heavenly Father will never ask anything of us that won't ultimately be for our good. Thank you.